Hi listeners, today's episode is a reminder that the chains of habit are too light to be felt until they're too heavy to be broken. And you know, people are very, 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 very tough. And it turns out that if you face things, it turns out that if you face things that you can put up with a lot more than you think you can put up with, and you can do it without becoming corrupted. And she did recover quite, quite fully, and much as a consequence of her own machinations, because she figured out what was wrong with her and then took the necessary steps to fix it, which is nothing short of a bloody miracle, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, anyways, part of the, the, the cat bit is, I actually start by talking about our dog, who actually died about a year ago, but he's still alive in the book. Um, I, you know, I let people know, because dog lovers love dogs, and if you love cats, then they think you don't like dogs, and then they think you don't, they don't like you. So I also point out at the beginning of the chapter that, you know, if you want to pet a dog on the street, that's okay too, so you don't have to get up in arms about it. But, but the idea is that, you know, you have to be alert when you're suffering. You have to be alert to the beauty in life, the unexpected beauty in life. And that's kind of what I was trying to get across with the idea of the cat. There's this cat that lives across the street from us called Ginger, and Ginger's a Siamese cat. And cats really aren't domesticated, eh? Technically speaking, they're still wild animals, but they kind of like people. God only knows why, but they do, you know? And so Ginger will come wandering over, and our dog looks at her, but they're friends, and she rolls over on his back, and Seiko used to, you know, nose her a bit. And, and then she'd kind of mosey over and let you pet her if she was feeling like it that day. And, you know, you have to look for those little bit of, that little bit of sparkling crystal in the darkness when things are bad. You have to look and see where things are still beautiful and where there's still something that's sustaining. And, you know, you narrow your time frame and you be grateful for what you have. And that can get you through some very dark times. And maybe even successfully, if you're lucky. But even if unsuccessfully, then maybe it's only tragic and not absolute hell. And you can do that, you know, in the worst situation. You can make it only tragic and not hell. And there's a big gap between tragedy and hell, you know. There's nothing worse at a deathbed than to see the people there fighting. The death is bad enough, but you can take that, as terrible as it is, and make it into something that's absolutely unbearable. And maybe I think, and this is sort of what I closed the book with, is this idea is that if we didn't all attempt to make terrible things even worse than they are, then maybe we could tolerate the terrible things that we have to put up with in order to exist. And maybe we could make the world into a better place, you know? And it's what we should be doing and what we could be doing because we don't have anything better to do. And that's what the book is about. And that's the end of 12 Rules for Life. Every time you learn something, you learn because something you did didn't work. And that exposes you to the part of the world that you don't understand. Every time you're exposed to part of the world that you don't understand, you have the possibility of rebuilding the structures that you use to interpret the world. That's often why it's more important to notice that you're wrong than it is to prove that you're right. One of the things that you're supposed to learn in university is precisely that. It might be useful to listen to people that annoy you on the off chance that they know something that, if they tell you, you can use instead of dying. Talking to people who agree with what you say is like walking around in a desert. You already know everything that they say. 
The reason you're associating with them in that situation is so that they never say anything that challenges you because you're afraid that if you go outside of what you understand that you won't be able to tolerate the chaos. But it isn't the case. People have an unbelievable capacity to face and overcome things they don't understand. And not only that, that's essentially what gives life its meaning. The Buddhists say life is suffering. And you think, well, if that's the case, why bother with it? And people do ask that question, and they ask it in ways that result in their own destruction, and worse, in the destruction of others. So, for example, people who become particularly cruel, particularly in a genocidal manner, are more than willing to dispense with as many human beings as they can possibly train their sights on, because they're so disgusted by the nature of human limitation that they'd rather eradicate it. And lots of people become suicidal because they can't bear the conditions of their own existence. And suffering is real, and it's inescapable. So the question is, what do you do about it? People don't get what they want is because they don't actually figure out what it is. And the probability that you're going to get what would be good for you, let's say, which would even be better than what you want, right? Because, you know, you might be wrong about what you want easily. But maybe you could get what would really be good for you. Well, why don't you? Well, because you don't try. You don't think, okay, here's what I would like if I could have it. And, and I, don't mean, I don't mean in a way that you manipulate the world to force it to deliver you goods for status or something like that. That isn't what I mean. I mean something like, imagine that you were taking care of yourself like you were someone you actually cared for. And then you thought, okay, I, I'm caring for this person. I would like things to go as well for them as possible. What would their life have to be like in order for that to be the case? Well, people don't do that. They don't sit down and think, all right, you know, let's, let's figure it out. You're, you've got a life. It's hard, obviously. It's like three years from now, you can have what you need. You've got to be careful about it. You can't have everything. You can have what would be good for you. But you have to figure out what it is. And then you have to aim at it. Well, my experience with people has been is if they figure out what it is that would be good for them and then they aim at it, then they get it. And it's strange because they don't necessarily, it's a strange thing. It's not quite that simple because, you know, you may formulate an idea about what would be good for you and then you take 10 steps towards that and you find out that your formulation was a bit off and so you have to reformulate your goal. You know, you're, so you're kind of going like this as you move towards the goal. But a huge part of the reason that people fail is because they don't ever set up the criteria for success. And so, since success is a very narrow line and very unlikely, the probability that you're going to stumble on it randomly is zero. And so, there's a proposition here, and the proposition is, if you actually want something, you can have it. Now, the question then would be, well, what do you mean by actually want? And the answer is that you reorient your life in every possible way, to make the probability that that will occur as certain as possible. And that's a sacrificial idea, right? It's like, you don't get everything. Obviously. You, obviously. But maybe you can have what you need. And maybe all you have to do to get it is ask. But asking isn't a whim or, or today's wish. It's like, you have to be deadly serious about it. You have to think, okay, like I'm taking stock of myself. And if I was going to live properly in the world, and I was going to set myself up such that being would justify itself in my estimation, and, and I don't mean as a harsh judge, exactly what is it that I would aim at? 
sit on your bed one day and ask yourself, uh, what's, what remarkably stupid things am I doing on a regular basis to absolutely screw up my life? And if you actually ask that question, but you have to want to know the answer, right? Because that's actually what asking the question means. It doesn't mean just mouthing the words. It means you have to decide that you want to know. You'll figure that out so fast it'll make your hair curl. It's not an accident that the axiomatic Western individual is someone who was unfairly nailed to a cross and tortured. It's like, yes, right, exactly. So what do you do about that? Well, I thought about that for a long time too. It's like, well, you don't get together in a damn mob because all that does is allow you to be as horrible as you could possibly imagine and suffer from none of the consequences. That's a bad idea. So how about we don't do that? Well, there's a deep idea in the West too. It's like, pick up your damn suffering and bear it and try to be a good person so you don't make it worse. Well, that's a truth. You know, I read a lot about the terrible things that people have done to each other. You just cannot even imagine it. It's so awful. So you don't want to be someone like that. Now, do you have a reason to be? Yes. You have a lots of reasons to be. God, there's reasons to be resentful about your existence. Everyone you know is going to die. You know, you too. And there's going to be a fair bit of pain along the way. And lots of it's going to be unfair. It's like, yeah, no wonder you're resentful. It's like, act it out and see what happens. You make everything you're complaining about infinitely worse. There's this idea that hell is a bottomless pit. And that's because no matter how bad it is, some stupid son of a bitch like you could figure out a way to make it a lot worse. <laughs> so you think, well, what do you do about that? Well, you accept it. That's what life is like. It's suffering. That's what the religious people have always said. Life is suffering. Yes. Well, who wants to admit that? Well, just think about it. Well, so what do you do in the face of that suffering? Try to reduce it. Start with yourself. What good are you? Get yourself together for Christ's sake so that when your father dies, you're not whining away in a corner and you can help plan the funeral and you can stand up solidly so that people can rely on you. That's better. Don't be a damn victim. Of course you're a victim. Jesus, obviously. Put yourself together. And then maybe if you put yourself together, you know how to do that. You know what's wrong with you, if you'll admit it. You know there's a few things you could like polish up a little bit that you might even be able to manage in your insufficient present condition. And so you might shine yourself up a little bit and then your eyes will be a little more open and then you can shine yourself up a little bit more and then maybe you could bring your family together instead of having them be the hateful, spiteful, neurotic, infighting batch that you're like doomed to spend Christmas with. So then you fix yourself up a little bit, kind of humbly, because, you know, God, you're a fixer-upper if there ever was one. And then you got to figure out, well, can you figure out how to make peace with your idiot brother? And probably not, because he's just as dumb as you, so how the hell are you going to manage that? And so then you, maybe you get somewhere that way, and your family's sort of functioning, and you find out, well, that kind of relieved a little bit of suffering, although it reduced the opportunities for spiteful revenge, and that's kind of a pain in the neck. And so... 
then you get your family together a little bit and you're a little clued in then, at least a bit, because you've done something difficult that's actually difficult. You're a little wiser, and so then maybe you can put a tentative finger out beyond the family and try to change some little thing without wrecking it. It's like our society is complex and we teach our students that they could just fix it. It's like, go fix a military helicopter and see how far you get with that. It's like, what are you gonna do? You're like a chimp with a wrench, whack. Oh, look, it's better. It's like, no, it's not better. Things are complicated, and to fix things is really hard. And you have to be like a, a golden tool to fix things, and you're not. So, and that's the other message of the West. It's like, how do you overcome the suffering of, the, of life? And I'm not saying it's only the message of the West. How do you overcome the suffering of life? Is be a better person. That's how you do it. Well, that's hard. It takes responsibility. And I think, you know, if you said to someone, you want to have a meaningful life? Everything you do matters. That's the definition of a meaningful life. But everything you do matters. So you're going to have to carry that with you. Or do you want to just forget about the whole meaning thing and then you don't have any responsibility because who the hell cares? And you can wander through life doing whatever you want, gratifying impulsive desires for how useful that's going to be. And you're stuck in meaninglessness, but you don't have any responsibility. Which one do you want? Well, ask yourself, which one are you pursuing? And you'll find very rapidly that it isn't the majority of your soul that's pursuing the whole meaning thing. Because, well, look what you have to do to do that. You have to take on the fact that life is suffering. You have to put yourself together in the face of that. Well, that's hard. Christ, it's amazing people can even do it. I'm stunned every day when I go outside and it isn't a, a riot with everything burning. Because really, God, you talk to people, it's like, I knew this guy, he'd been in a motorcycle accident and it really ruined him. And he was like a linesman, you know, working on the power. And he was working with someone who had Parkinson's disease. And, they had complementary inadequacies. And so two of them could do the job of one person. And so they're out there fixing power lines in the freezing cold, despite the fact that one was three quarters wrecked with a motorcycle accident and the other one has Parkinson's. It's like, that's how our civilization works. It's like, there's all these ruined people out there. They've got problems like you can't believe. Off they go to work and do things they don't even like. And look, the lights are on. My God, it's unbelievable. It's, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. And we're so ungrateful. College students, the postmodern types, they're so ungrateful. You know, they don't know that they're surrounded by just a bloody miracle. It's a miracle that all this stuff works. That all you crazy chimpanzees that don't know each other can sit in the same room for two hours sweltering away without tearing each other apart because that's what chimps do. So, <sighs> anyways, so what happened? Well, I made some videos and I got to the bottom of some things, at least as far as I can tell, so I told you what the bottom is. And then I got this idea about what you might do about it, which isn't my idea. It's like, it's not my idea. It's an old, 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 old idea. It's far older than Christianity. It's old, it's the oldest story of mankind. Get yourself together. Transcend your suffering. See if you can be some kind of hero. Make the suffering in the world less. Well, that's the way forward, as far as I can tell, if there is any way forward. Final rule. 
It's called pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. And it's, it's, a very, it's the most personal chapter in the book. It's a lot about my daughter. And my daughter was very ill when she was, well, when she was a kid, but well, particularly when she was a teenager. She had a very terrible time of it. Um, she had juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, and when she was between the ages of 14 and 16, it first destroyed her hip, which had to be replaced, and then it destroyed the ankle on her other leg, which had to be replaced. And she walked around for two years on broken legs, and she was taking massive doses of opiates and could hardly stay awake. And, like, and she had this advanced autoimmune disease, which produced all sorts of other symptoms that were just as bad as the joint degeneration, but which are harder to describe. And so it's just bloody brutal. You know, and as a test of your faith, there's almost nothing that's more direct than a serious illness inflicted upon an innocent child, right? And so the chapter is a meditation on that and also on, well, what to do in a situation like that. Because everyone is going to have a situation like that in some sense, you know, because you'll be faced with illness in the people that you love and in crisis. And so... It's a, it's a practical guide to coping with those sorts of things. Like, and one of the things you do when you're overwhelmed by crisis is you shorten your time frame. You know, it's like you can't think about next month. Maybe you can't even bloody well think about next week or maybe not even tomorrow. You know, because now is just so overwhelming that that's all there is. It's like, and that's what you do. You cut your time frame back until you can cope with it. And if it's not the next week that you see how to get through, then it's the next day. And if it's not the next day, then it's the next hour. And if it's not the next hour, then it's the next minute. The internal problem is, how do you deal with tragedy and malevolence? And you can say, well, I'm not prepared. It's like, yeah, fair enough. Unsurprising, especially if you were overprotected as a child. It's not a good idea to overprotect your kids because the snakes are gonna come into the garden no matter what you do. And so then you, instead of trying to keep the damn snakes away, what you do is you arm your child with something that can help them chop them into pieces and make the world out of them. So that the, the trick for human thriving in the face of suffering and malevolence is strength, not protection. It's a completely different idea. We also know this clinically. We know, for example, that if you treat people with exposure therapy for agoraphobia, which is roughly speaking, the fear of chaos, I would say, the fear of everything, you don't make them less afraid. You make them braver. It's not the same thing. Because with an agoraphobic, see, what happens to them is, is the fall. They never conceptualize death and suffering. They're naive, right? It, it never enters their, the theater of their imagination, and it's because they're protected from it. But then something happens. This, this often happens to women in their 40s, because they're, they're the people most likely to develop agoraphobia. Something happens. They're, they've been protected from chaos by authority their entire life. So maybe they had an overprotective father, and then they went to an overprotective boyfriend, and then they went to an overprotective husband. And maybe they were willing to be subjugated to all three of those because of the protection, right? So, so that's the bargain. They, they stay weak and dependent, and maybe they have to because that's the only way they can appeal to the person who's hyperprotective. But the price they pay for that is that they're not sufficiently competent. And then something happens in their life, often in their 40s, they develop heart palpitations maybe as a consequence of menopause. Their heart starts to beat erratically and they think, oh no, death. It's like, well, who are you going to talk to about that? Right? There's no protection from authority for that. Or maybe their friend gets divorced or maybe their sister dies or something like that. It brings up the specter of mortality 
and maybe the specter of malevolence and mortality, and it brings it up in a way that authority, recourse to authority, cannot solve. And so then they have panic attacks. What happens? They go out, they get afraid, they feel their heart beating, then they get afraid of their heart beating because they think, oh no, I'm going to die, and they think, oh no, I'm going to die, and I'm going to make a fool of myself while I'm doing it and attract a lot of attention. So the two big fears come up, mortality and social judgment. And then they have a panic attack, it's like fight or flight's gone out of control, very, very unpleasant. Then they start to avoid the places they've had a panic attack. Then they end up not being able to go anywhere. So then Tiamat has come back, right? A huge monster, a little victim. And so what do you do with them? Well, there's no saying, no, there's no Tiamat. That's done, right? Their naivety is over. They, they've had a direct contact with the threat of mortality and social judgment. They've met the terrible mother and they've met the terrible father. And there's no going back. There's no saying, oh, the world is safe. It's not safe. Not at all. It's not safe. The fact that you think it's safe means that you were living in an unconscious bubble that was sort of provided to you by your culture. It's a gift. And now that's been shattered. And so now what do you do? Well, the answer is you retreat until you're in your house and there's nowhere you can go. You're the ultimate frozen rabbit, right? And your life is hell because you can't function. The alternative is, let's take apart the things you're afraid of. Let's expose you to them, you know, carefully and programmatically. And then you'll learn that you can, you're actually tougher than you think. You never knew that. And maybe you didn't want to take on the responsibility because, you know, people play a role in their own demise, so to speak. When you had opportunity to go out and explore or withdraw because you were afraid, you chose to withdraw because you were afraid. So it's not only that you were overprotected often, it's that you were willing to take advantage of the fact that you were overprotected and run back there whenever you had the opportunity. You know, so maybe you're a kid in the playground, right, and you're having some trouble with other kids, and you know in the back of your mind, I should deal, this with, deal with this myself, but you go and tell your mom and get her to intervene. And you know that that's not right. You know that you're breaking the social contract, but it's easier, and so that's what you do. You run off to an authority figure and hide behind the great father, right, roughly speaking. Well, the problem with that is you don't learn how to do it yourself. So then you have to relearn it painfully when you're 40. So then you take people out, you say, well, what are you afraid of? Rank it from one to ten. So ten is, make a list of ten things you're afraid of. The least, the thing you're least afraid of, we'll call number ten. So we'll start with that. Okay, well, I'm afraid of elevators. Okay, well, let's, let's look at a picture of an elevator. Let's have you imagine being in an elevator. Let's go out to an elevator and let you watch the terrible jaws of death open, because that's how you're responding to it symbolically, right? And you're going to do that at it at the, the closest proximity you can manage. You find out you go do that, it works. You're nervous as hell, especially an, from an anticipatory perspective. Shaking. You go out, you stop, you watch it happen, and you actually calm down. You do that ten times and it no longer bothers you. Well, what you've learned that you didn't die, but more importantly than that, you've learned that you could withstand the threat of death. That's what you've learned. And then you move a little closer, and then you move a little closer, and then you move a little closer, and finally you're back in what's no longer the elevator from a symbolic perspective. It's a tomb, right? It's, it's, it's a place of enclosure and isolation. And you learn, hmm, turns out I can withstand that. And then you're much more together, much more confident. And that's often one of the things that often happens in situations like that. I've seen this multiple times, is that 
if you run someone through an exposure training process like that and, and toughen them up, they'll often start standing up to people around them in a way they never did before because they wouldn't stand up for themselves before because they weren't willing to undermine the protection. See, if you're protecting me, I can't bother you because I can't afford to forsake your protection. So if I'm going to play that game, I'm going to be hide behind you, then I can't challenge you. So that's no good because that's sometimes why people, you see this with guys very frequently, they're still deathly afraid of their father's judgment when they're in their 30s or 40s. It's like, well, why? Because well, they still want to believe that there's someone out there that knows. And so they're willing to accept the subjugation because it doesn't force them to challenge the idea that there's someone out there that knows. Because that's the advantage of having your father as a judge, right? Because he knows. Well, what if he doesn't? What if no one knows any better than you? Well, that's a rough thing. You don't, until you realize that, you're not an adult, right? That's really technically the point of realization of adulthood is that no one actually knows what you should do more than you do. I mean, it's a horrible realization because what the hell do you know? It's a terrible realization and people will often pick slavery, permanent slavery to the spirit of the great father, let's say, over that realization and it's completely understandable. But the problem with it is, is that there's more to you than you think. And so if you continue to hide behind that figure, then you never have a chance to understand that there's more to you than you think, far more to you than you think. Maybe there's enough to you so that you can actually withstand the threat of mortality without collapsing. Maybe even withstand the threat of malevolence without collapsing. Who knows? It's certainly possible. And it's not an abstract question. It's exactly the sort of question that you address in the psychotherapeutic process. It's, it's always the question that you address. And the answer is often in the affirmative because people can get unbelievably tough. And you know that because people work in emergency wards and hospitals, right? Or they work in, in uh, palliative care wards or they work as mortuary assistants. I mean, these people have bloody rough jobs, you know, or they're on the front line of police investigation into, you know, heinous child abuse crimes and so they're confronting malevolence on a regular basis and you know those are very stressful jobs but people do them and and some people do them without even being damaged by them although that's a harder thing because you can see horrible things you know things you'll never forget the problem is it's true you're oppressed you're oppressed you're oppressed you're oppressed god only knows why maybe you're too short or you're not as beautiful as you could be or you know, your parent, your grandparent was a serf, likely, because almost everybody's grand, great-grandparent was. It's like, you know, and you're not as smart as you could be, and you have a sick relative, and you have your own physical problems, and it's like, frankly, you're a mess. And you're oppressed in every possible way, including your ancestry and your biology, and the entire sum of human history has conspired to produce victimized you with all your individual pathological problems. It's like, yes! true okay but the problem is is that it is true and so if you take the oppressed you have to fractionate them and fractionate them and it's like you're a woman yeah okay well i'm a black woman well i'm a black woman who has two children well i'm a black woman who has two children and one of them isn't very healthy and then well i'm a i'm a hispanic woman and i have a genius son who doesn't have any money so that he can't go to university and, you know, I had a hell of a time getting across the border. It was really hard on me to get my citizenship. My husband is an alcoholic brute. It's like, well, yeah, that sucks too. And so, well, so let's, let's, let's fix all your oppression. 
and we'll take every single thing into account, and then we'll fix yours too. We'll take every single thing into account. It's like, no, you won't, because you can't. You can't. It is technically impossible. First of all, you can't even list all the ways that you're oppressed. Second, how are you going to weight them? Third, who's going to decide? And that's the bloody thing. Who's going to decide? That's the thing. Well, what's the answer in the West? It's like in free markets. Oh, yeah, Christ will never be able to solve this problem. No one can solve it. What are we going to do about that? We're going to outsource it to the marketplace. You're going to take your sorry, pathetic being, and you're going to try to offer me something that maybe I want. And I'm going to take my sorry, pathetic being, and I'm going to say, well, all things considered, as well as I can understand them, maybe I could give you this much money, which is actually a promise, for that thing. And you've packed all of your damn oppression into the price. And I've packed all my oppression into the willingness to pay it. And that solution sucks. It's a bad solution. But compared to every other solution, man, it's why 10% of us have freedom. And so there, there's a tremendous illogic at the bottom of this. It's like you have to fractionate the oppressed all the way down to the level of the individual. Well, that's what the West figured out. You know, there's a couple of figures who at the mythological roots of our culture. And, you know, people get upset with me because I bring in religious themes. But I understand some things about mythology and religion. And it's not an accident that the axiomatic Western individual is someone who was unfairly nailed to a cross and tortured. It's like, yes, right, exactly. So what do you do about that? Well, I thought about that for a long time, too. It's like, well, you don't get together in a damn bob, because all that does is allow you to be as horrible as you could possibly imagine and suffer from none of the consequences. That's a bad idea. So how about we don't do that? Well, there's a deep idea in the West, too. It's like, pick up your damn suffering and bear it and try to be a good person so you don't make it worse. Well, that's a truth. You know, I read a lot about the terrible things that people have done to each other. You just cannot even imagine it. So awful. So you don't want to be someone like that. Now, do you have a reason to be? Yes. You have a lots of reasons to be. God, there's reasons to be resentful about your existence. Everyone you know is going to die. You know, you too. And there's going to be a fair bit of pain along the way, and lots of it's going to be unfair. It's like, yeah, no wonder you're resentful. It's like, act it out and see what happens. You make everything you're complaining about infinitely worse. There's this idea that hell is a bottomless pit, and that's because no matter how bad it is, some stupid son of a bitch like you could figure out a way to make it a lot worse. So you think, well, what do you do about that? Well, you accept it. That's what life is like. It's suffering. That's what the religious people have always said. Life is suffering. Not only do you have to move from point A to B in life, but point A is often a very difficult place to be because we're fragile and bounded and mortal and limited and because we know that. And so one of the implications of that, as many great religious traditions are at pains to illustrate or demonstrate or proclaim, is that life is essentially suffering. And I believe that to be a fundamental truth. But 
but perhaps not the most fundamental truth, because I think the most fundamental truth is that despite the fact that life is suffering, people can transcend that. And partly the way they transcend that is by pursuing things of value. And so that if there is no value proposition at hand, then you have no meaning to justify the difficult conditions of your life. And that's brutally difficult for people. You know, Nietzsche said, um, he who has a why can bear any how. And you see, and, and I've certainly seen this as a clinical practitioner, that people who have no purpose in their life are embittered by the difficulties of their life. And they become first bitter, and then resentful, and then revengeful, and then cruel. And there's plenty of places to go past cruel. That's just where you start if you're really on a downhill. So then you fix yourself up a little bit, kind of humbly, because, you know, God, you're a fixer-upper if there ever was one. And then you got to figure out, well, can you figure out how to make peace with your idiot brother? And probably not, because he's just as dumb as you, so how the hell are you going to manage that? And so then you, maybe you get somewhere that way, and your family's sort of functioning, and you find out, well, that kind of relieved a little bit of suffering, although it reduced the opportunities for spiteful revenge, and that's kind of a pain in the neck. And so then you get your family together a little bit and you're a little clued in then, at least a bit, because you've done something difficult that's actually difficult. You're a little wiser and so then maybe you can put a tentative finger out beyond the family and try to change some little thing without wrecking it. It's like our society is complex and we teach our students that they could just fix it. It's like go fix a military helicopter and see how far you get with that. It's like you're going to get to do. You're like a chimp with a wrench. Whack! Oh, look, it's better. It's like, no, it's not better. Things are complicated, and to fix things is really hard. And you have to be like a, a golden tool to fix things, and you're not. So, and that's the other message of the West. It's like, how do you overcome the suffering of, the, of life? And I'm not saying it's only the message of the West. How do you overcome the suffering of life? It's be a better person. That's how you do it. Well, that's hard. It takes responsibility. And I think, you know, if you said to someone, you want to have a meaningful life? Everything you do matters. That's the definition of a meaningful life. But everything you do matters. You're going to have to carry that with you. Or do you want to just forget about the whole meaning thing and then you don't have any responsibility because who the hell cares? And you can wander through life doing whatever you want, gratifying impulsive desires for how useful that's going to be. And you're stuck in meaninglessness, but you don't have any responsibility. Which one do you want? Well, ask yourself, which one are you pursuing? And you'll find very rapidly that it isn't the majority of your soul that's pursuing the whole meaning thing. Because, well, look what you have to do to do that. Yeah have to take on the fact that life is suffering. You have to put yourself together in the face of that. Well, that's hard. Christ, it's amazing people can even do it. I'm stunned every day when I go outside and it isn't a, a riot with everything burning. Because really, God, you talk to people, it's like, I knew this guy, he'd been in a motorcycle accident and it really ruined him. And he was like a linesman, you know, working on the power. And he was working with someone who had Parkinson's disease. And, they had complementary inadequacies. And so two of them could do the job of one person. And so they're out there fixing power lines in the freezing cold, despite the fact that one was three quarters wrecked with a motorcycle accident. And the other one had Parkinson's. It's like, 
that's how our civilization works. It's like there's all these ruined people out there. They've got problems like you can't believe. Off they go to work and do things they don't even like. And look, the lights are on. My God, it's unbelievable. It's, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. And we're so ungrateful. College students, the postmodern types, they're so ungrateful. You know, they don't know that they're surrounded by just a bloody miracle. It's a miracle that all this stuff works. That all you crazy chimpanzees that don't know each other can sit in the same room for two hours sweltering away without tearing each other apart because that's what chimps do. So, uh, anyways, so what happened? Well, I made some videos and I got to the bottom of some things, at least as far as I can tell, so I told you what the bottom is. And then I got this idea about what you might do about it, which isn't my idea. Like, it's not my idea. It's an old, 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 old idea. It's far older than Christianity. It's old. It's the oldest story of mankind. Get yourself together. Transcend your suffering. See if you can be some kind of hero. Make the suffering in the world less. Well, that's the way forward, as far as I can tell, if there is any way forward.